Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We've been around great leaders. You know, some of the most formative years of our of our lives happened under awesome leadership with Gino and our and our assistant coaches. And um, and so I think we get outraged uh, a little more, you know, in, in a certain way because we know how it's supposed to look. We were trained to be, you know, leaders and to take ownership of our people and our teammates and, and our team and our journey. And so when we see things that are that are done in a way that isn't about the group and the team and, and, and what's best for all of us and doing it together, I think it just it, it gets under our skin. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we have one of the great basketball players to ever walk the earth, four-time WNBA champion, MVP and two-time gold medalist from the Minnesota Lynx, Maya Moore. Now, we're not necessarily talking hoops with Maya Moore, but instead we're going to be speaking about her new project, which is about the criminal justice system and fighting against prosecutorial misconduct and mass incarceration. Also, I've got some choice words about what the sports world can tell us and teach us about the mad rush by cities to bend over backwards for Amazon in the bidding process to secure the new location for Amazon Headquarters 2.0. Lastly, we got our Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards. We got a special Kaepernick watch and a special announcement about our new Patreon page. But let's start with Maya Moore. So happy to be talking about criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, and the importance of athlete activism with Maya Moore. Maya, how are you doing? Hey, doing well. Awesome. No, I saw this interview that you did with Jerry Stackhouse. It was terrific on the Players' Tribune. And you said at one point that you were not aware of this issue of mass incarceration growing up uh, in a middle-class home. When did you become aware that we have a serious problem in this country um, around these issues. What was that moment for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating um, 
when you when you start thinking about things that you didn't know about, um, and you know your your question exactly of, of of that process for me, and and it's really amazing to think that um, a lot of uh, these issues, you know, it comes from I think just being in the African American community first, um, and being black, I have just um, I think more of a built-in connection to issues that face black Americans, but also um, just being um, kind of in, in the sports world and, and, and being connected to, to people that um, are taking an interest in, you know, the issues that, that, that face uh, minorities and, and, and people of color. Um, but I remember, you know, the documentary 13th was a really powerful um, piece that, you know, just woke me up in a, in a in a in a greater way, you know, some of the things I knew, some of the things I wasn't aware of just politically and kind of mm-hmm. uh, of just the the flow from from slavery um you know to today and and, and just how laws um just continue to morph and transform and and just mindsets of people and where our culture is moving and and how much further we still have to go. So I think it was just a combination of um you know uh, documentaries like that, movements that have come from the, the sports and entertainment world, a little bit, and also just, um, like I said, just being connected with the with the black community because I'm, you know, African American. So, um, but you know, the last couple of summers, uh, just with with, I think more athletes speaking out more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just people in the spotlight uh, speaking out has kind of forced people to think about. Um, some things that maybe we've been just comfortable and not uh, those things haven't come across our path. So it's been it's been a journey, but I think the last couple of years has definitely um, sparked you know momentum just for me personally, and I know for a lot of people around the world and in our country. Now, one of the cases that you spoke about and have been speaking about is the case of Jonathan Irons. Uh, can you speak a little bit? about that case and why that case to you is emblematic of the broader need for reform. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, like I was saying, just being, um, um, you know, an African-American myself and, 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 and also um, being in a family that, um, you know, I grew up uh, connected to some of my extended family who were very, uh, rooted in in in, in faith and, and in the church, and um, I think just the people that they are uh, of just having that um, that mindset of 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 loving others as you know as as Christ has loved us. I really got to see that lived out in my family as I was growing up, and it really started with my great uncle who had been doing prison ministry for over twenty years, close to thirty years, and. He became a mentor to this young man who we're now talking about, Jonathan Irons, you know, about 18 years ago, and just started learning about his story. He just saw potential in him because he was a part of the choir program. Jonathan was a part of the choir program that my great uncle was was volunteering at, um, and just got to know this young man because he saw potential in him as a leader and as a person. And he essentially, over the years, just started mentoring him. And uh, my godparents got involved, who are my extended cousins, and. They just started looking at his case and learning more about him and just really <laughs> dove into his life in a way that was above and beyond the call of just being polite. 
and really felt a, a connection and a compassion to help Jonathan, who didn't have a lot of re- didn't have a lot of resources to uh, to stand up and give him a voice for his wrongful conviction. And so that's how I became aware of Jonathan's case um, was through my extended family who got connected to him through prison ministry. And uh, that um, you know it was really just um, the more you got to know, the more outrage I started to feel, and I think our family started to feel. And seeing just what um, an awesome person he is despite his circumstances and how he's grown and the things he's trying to do to fight for himself and continue to be a light where he is. Um, uh, what, what, was he, what was he convicted of and how long has he been behind bars and where, where is he? Yeah, he's in the Jefferson City Correctional Center, which is where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born in Jefferson City, Missouri and lived there until I was 11. And that's where my, a lot of my family is now. And he was 16 years old. Living on his own, um, you know, he, he has kind of a typical story of, of, of growing up, uh, not having a lot of money, not having his parents, was raised by his grandmother. And by the time he was, you know, a, you know, a young teen, um, getting caught up in the wrong things, you know, tired of being poor and scared, and you get, you get connected with gang life. And so he was living on his own, um, you know, with that kind of typical story. And so obviously he's... Not going to be a favorite person of the law enforcement in his area, and 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 looking. Uh, there's so many, there's so many other details of of what was going on with law mm-hmm. enforcement in the area in that time, in the late '90s in 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 O'Fallon, Missouri. But um, you know, he gets picked up for for a uh, attempted robbery, uh, non-fatal, uh, no physical evidence tying him to the scene, um, and he he gets. A massive sentence for you know a non-fatal robbery attempt, um, and there's just so many other details in this case when you look at it uh, that are just mind blowing. Um, we've had experts come in and look at his case to just say there's just so many things that were done wrong, um, and so um, that's how I got connected with his case. Wow. Coming to find out, you know, he's one of so many uh, that this has happened to, and, and unfortunately still happens to, um, and so that's kind of really where my journey. Um, and my mind got opened even more to this is real. How long was this 16-year-old put behind bars? He was given a 65-year sentence, and he Jeez. has to serve 50 of that. So, um, again, one of the many issues of over-sentencing and how in the world did he get that much time, um, you know, as a 16-year-old um, is just is really another disheartening feature of um fact about his case so uh yeah he's been in for 21 years they just snatched his life just like that unbelievable um so let me ask you this then i mean you're you're speaking first i gotta ask like there's so many issues connected to the criminal justice system and you seem to have honed in on this issue of prosecutorial reform prosecutorial misconduct electing better district attorneys to look at this stuff. Why of everywhere in this just sprawling mass of a system that affects so many people in so many different ways, why have you chosen to focus on that aspect of it? That's a great question, and you're exactly right. Like There, there are so many components and, and, and different um, people and levels and practices involved in our criminal justice system. Um, but as an athlete um, and as a leader and as someone who's excelled in my sport, you know, over time, I've started to 
really appreciate and understand and, and feel um, like I know a thing or two about leadership. And I've been around great leaders and I've been around poor leaders. And I see the prosecutors in our justice system as key leaders and people who have who have power and responsibility and, and a great um, level of, 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 of control over um, how our justice system is executed. And, and um, so I just gravitate, I think, toward leaders. And, you know, I, I love leaders. I love honoring leaders. I love celebrating good leaders. But I also have high standards for leaders because the impact that we can have um, can be really great or it can be devastating. And so I also think uh, the fact that we have voting power and are able to have an impact on these leaders is um, encouraging for citizens to know, like, we have a part in who our leaders are and who we want to follow and who we want to put in charge of something so weighty as our as our justice system. And so I just thought it was a great... Um, place to connect, to encourage, to add to, um, but also to, to um, you know, empower people to know this is something that you can um, have control over and influence over um, so that people feel like they have a way to respond. Mm. You also wrote in USA Today, and it was, it was a beautiful piece, um, about redefining success in terms of how prosecutors define winning. Um, can you speak a little bit about how in a better world, how a prosecutor would define success as opposed to the world we live in now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that um, as I was having these discussions and thinking about these issues, that it just seemed like a natural um, connection for me as, a, as an elite athlete to connect to prosecutors of understanding um, the desire to want to win and understanding the desire to want to you know, get it done, you know, that, that athletic mindset I can totally see how that connects with prosecutors who are in charge of, you know, getting convictions and, and, and how you can get caught up in, you know, some of the surface level kind of stats of, mm-hmm. of your job and and really understanding how much deeper success is and how much, you know, richer our call is as, as champions to how you win is just as important Um Especially when it comes to people's lives in our in our country, you know, as, as athletes, sometimes, you know, you realize it's a game. But in real life, you know, for people like prosecutors, these are the implications of your decisions are much greater than you know a trophy at the end of the year. So um, I just wanted to to talk about you know how, you know, for me and, and the way that I've played and been taught and, and have led is. Um, you know, it's people first. It's my teammates first. It's how how we win, how we relate, how we connect, how we play the mm-hmm. game, and knowing when we do these things, if we have the talent, if we're not injured, you know, we can win, and we can win in a way that feels amazing and is great for everybody. So um, I just kind of wanted to, to to connect that to the prosecutorial you know process of it's not just about getting convictions. It's about are we making our communities healthier? Are we uh, really executing justice by by thinking deeply about um, you know the implications uh, of actions and, and and really thinking about um, everybody that we're serving that we've been voted in to serve. So um, that's really what I was trying to examine and really try to revive that mindset um, of you know why are we doing this? 
So in a lot of cities, some cities, as you point out, are electing these more reform-minded prosecutors. Philadelphia just had a huge election that's gotten a lot of news, but it's happening in other places as well. But in a lot of places, a lot of people hearing this podcast, you know, that that just won't be their DA. So people will have to think more about, okay, well, what reforms are we going to pressure this prosecutor to try to adopt since, you know, as a person, maybe they don't align with what we believe in. So what are some common sense reforms that people should be fighting for? You know, this is um, a part of my journey uh, is continuing to learn myself. That's part of what um, I'm doing. I'm I'm creating a a documentary that's taking uh, people along Jonathan's journey, my journey as an athlete and learning. Um, and I don't know, um, you know, every single issue. And one of the, the great things about the um, uh, the Players' Tribune piece that you, you were referencing earlier is I got to meet uh, a woman uh, named Miriam Krinsky, and she is in charge of an organization called Fair and Just Prosecution. And mm-hmm. she quips and, 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 and gathers uh, leaders in, in, uh, who are prosecutors to help um, – you know, equip them to to do the things that we're talking about about reform and doing things better and right and um, you know. So, so that's a good resource for people. It's a great resource. You know, if you want to answer questions like that, and I'm still learning, and that she's a resource and somebody I'm going to be calling on and looking toward, mm-hmm. looking to, um, you know, for for questions like that of of when it comes down to the you know, the nitty-gritty about the reforms. Um, like how we actually win, like, bail reform, the end to mandatory minimums, stopping prosecuting 16-year-olds like they're adults. Right. Yeah, these are things Miriam was talking about when I was connecting with her during the video. And um, some of the things in Jonathan's case that I, I know about, um, you know, these are all reforms and things that she, you know, she's trying to help, um, you know, bring to light and, and bring, um you know, as far as, you know, kids getting tried, um, you know, with just <laughs> outrageous, you know, sentences. You know, if I was 16 years old, I wouldn't know what, you know, yeah. I would, if, you know, for the first time I'm really getting, um, you know, held accountable for my actions and, and knowing, like, so much change can happen for a kid mm-hmm. from 16 to 25. Or, you know, you're, you're doing so much growing and you still have so much life to live and just to give up on somebody at that young of an age is definitely one of the reforms I know Miriam was talking to me about and, and wanting to be passionate about. Um, What's the name of her organization again? Can you repeat that? Fair and Just Prosecution. Fair and Just Prosecutions. Now, I, I got to ask you about your own history because you, you were active in the summer of 2016 speaking out after the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Um, I want to ask what that experience was like for you in terms of any sort of support or blowback, and also is there any connection between that experience for you and the work that you're doing now? Um, well, I, I think you know that summer. That summer was hard. I think for all of us, um, 2016 was was crazy. I mean, it's just just simply put, it was a crazy summer, and that isn't the um, it's in the heart of our season as WNBA athletes. And so a lot of these uh, highs and lows, and or a lot of lows, rather, uh, were happening um, in the middle of our season. And so we felt um, as players and, and our coaches, too, um, that we, we needed to kind of, I think, be leaders in trying to help 
um, speak speak up, speak out um, to help bring us together. Um, but bring us together in the name of we need to be better um, as people, as um, as a country. Um, and so the heart of our message in 2016 was change starts with us because we're just trying to model what we already do as champions is when things are going wrong, when, when there's craziness happening, we can't sit here and point the finger. We have to look inside of ourselves and take responsibility first of what we can do um, to help the situation. So that's where the change starts with us on our T-shirts came from. Mm-hmm. We were wanting to really speak out and stand up for um you know, so many people who are affected by this, but, you know, um, one of the killings happening in Louisiana really touched mm-hmm. Simone. She's from, you know, she's from the boot. Simone Augustus is, uh, you know, uh, proud of being from Louisiana, and, and that hit her heart. And, you know, I think it happened, you know, close to where she used to live. And so it was mm-hmm. really close to home for Simone. And then Philando's happening in Minnesota in our, in our back door, the Twin Cities, we just felt... A lot of um, close-to-home hits. And so, and we also want to honor the police officers killed in Texas, too. Like, we understood it was, everybody is being affected by this, and it needs to stop. And so um, we wanted to, to do something, even though we weren't necessarily standing on the momentum of anyone else at the time. We said, we're going to step out and take a chance and and speak up and try to do something positive in the in the wake of all of this tragedy. And so we were kind of, we took that we took that risk and stepped into um, that moment to, to be leaders. And, yeah, we got some blowback from different people who, you know, obviously um, took whatever they wanted from what we said and, and made it offensive to them um, without, I don't think, really truly feeling the heart of what we were saying. Um, mm. But, you know, that's what happens when, you know, you're in a world where everybody can, can speak out and kind of have an opinion. But um, that, no question, I think, gave me confidence to continue on this path of using my platform to speak up for um you know the the people and it's been it's been good and I feel um you know um, really really good about the process it's been hard because this is such a heavy subject but mm-hmm. really happy with the direction it's leading me and, and some of my teammates and and hopefully society. Now, it gets lost sometimes that the WNBA players who stood so bravely in the summer of 2016, that all of that happened before Colin Kaepernick. That really does get lost. But of course, since Colin Kaepernick took his knee, you've had this explosion of of athletes from the high school level on uh, using the platform to try to say something about, about racism and equality in this world. Has that impacted your conf- confidence to come out now and speak about such a weighty issue, to see all these other athletes doing that? Um, of course, you know, you know, whenever you can see, um, uh, I think people doing things that could risk their well-being um, to help other people who don't have a voice. It always is a beautiful thing to see that that sacrifice and that risk that people who have a lot to lose uh, step into that and and to take that chance to to do something um, for someone else um, that that right there just personally whether I'm involved in you know being a leader in it or not just motivates me um, that you know we 
we have uh, the potential to to get you know to to make progress because we see people doing it, and so um, and to know that you know my teammates and I and, and our league um, were a part of that and you know that that movement in the beginning. We didn't know what was going to happen the rest of the summer and moving into the mm-hmm. months following. We were just acting in what we felt you know what we could do in that moment to be compassionate and to be leaders. And so to see other athletes do the same thing has been really encouraging. Um, But I also want to continue to um, encourage athletes and people who have a voice to be really, really thoughtful, you know, about their message and and how they're communicating and, um, and, you know, to continue to be, to learn and be knowledgeable about the issues and, and to keep it genuine, you know, that it's really about changing the hearts of people and, 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 and about being better to each other as Americans and uh, being responsible and accountable for, you know, people who have leadership over really weighty things like, um, you know, the justice system and and and, and, and our laws. So, um, you know, really happy with um, the progress we're making and, and, and continuing to stay unified and, um, and the message of, you know, racial equality and, and, and equal justice. Now, a little bit off the, this path, but I, I got to ask you, like when I'm looking at the athletes who've been outspoken recently, in addition to your name, I, I see names like Brianna Stewart and Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi. I got to ask you, is there any kind of UConn connection you can make for us? Because, uh, you know, it's not like when at UConn, it was like this political hotbed of players on the team. It's been like the post-UConn assuming this mantle of leadership. Is there any connection, or is that just happenstance because a lot of athletes are speaking out? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, you know, there's, I think, a couple of things that pop in my head. Of, I say, of, of course, there's a UConn connection because we've been around great leaders. We were, you know, some of the most um, formative years of our of our lives happened under awesome leadership with Gino and our and our assistant coaches and um and so I think we get outraged uh a little more you know in, in a certain way because we know how it's supposed to look um we were trained to be you know leaders and to take ownership of our people and our teammates and, and our team and our journey and so when we see things that are um that are done in a way that isn't about the group and the team and, and, and what's best for all of us and doing it together, I think it just it, it gets under our skin. And so because we know how it's supposed to look, uh, I think we're able to see and, and, and know how to react as leaders um, when we see it's not going well. So I think definitely there's that UConn connection there. But I also think there's so many people who are doing things that we have no idea that they're even doing it. Just, they just mm-hmm. don't have the attention. And so um, I don't want to downplay people who – um, may not have the platform or shouting it from the rooftops per se about these issues but are fighting on the ground still in their own way. So um, I know there's so many people out there doing other things that just don't have the platform that we as UConn players have. So I am proud, of, though, of the fact that because we're UConn players, we do have a platform, and you know some of us are, are really stepping into using that, and um, it does make me... Um, you know, happy to know that people are, are using those experiences from um, what we learned at UConn as far as leadership and, and winning and success. 
We'll be right back with more from Maya Moore. But first, a very important quick word for Edge of Sports listeners. Yo, we are starting a Patreon page. All you got to do is go to www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod, where you can become someone who helps keep this podcast going. We've got different categories by which you can give to help us keep on doing the work that we're doing. Look, I never thought I would need a Patreon page, but the fact of the matter is this. That intersection of sports and politics has just exploded in the last year, and we want to do more. We want to take the show on the road. We want to make more merch. We want to do more stuff. And to do that, we need your help. Look, this podcast will always be free. You don't got to give anything. But if you appreciate the content we give, please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And now, back with Maya Moore. Now, you've been uh, so generous with your time, and I really do appreciate it. Um, I had some listeners when I said I was going to be interviewing you. I got, like, bombarded with questions that people wanted me to ask you, random questions. Can I just ask you three of them just for the purposes of keeping my community happy? Of course. Three, three random questions I can do. Three random questions. And some of them are people you might have heard of. Uh, Jamila King, who listens to the show and is a terrific journalist, she wanted to know what's the worst drill Gino ever made you do? You know what? That is so crazy you're asking me this. For whatever reason, I was having flashbacks of one of the drills this morning as I was brushing my teeth. So funny. I don't know why. I must have just been dreaming or something. I don't know. But we did this drill where at some point in practice we knew it was coming. It was called 16. And we'd have to get on the sidelines. We start at the sideline. You don't start on the baseline. Start on the sideline, and you run from sideline to sideline. I think it's a total of 16, so like eight down and backs or 16. And this is in, this isn't in the beginning of practice. This is like middle kind of end of practice. So you're already tired, and we have to run, touch the line. We're timed, and you have to get it, you know, under you know a certain time. It might, it might have been a minute or something, 40 something seconds. I can't remember, but and then immediately after the drill was over, you went into another drill where you had to make jump shots and threes. And then the other two players in the line had to get the rebound. And if it hit the floor, if the ball hit the floor, you had to start over. And we had to get a number under a certain time. This is after we did 16s in the middle of practice. And so I don't know how I made it through, but uh, we made it. You know, we got it. We got it most of the time. Um, You know, otherwise we'd have to keep doing it. So I don't really remember the full name of that drill. I just – Clearly, it, it scarred me. The 16, yes. <laughs> it was intense, but uh, at the end of the games, we, we knew how to hit shots and rebounds. So. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that when you find like, okay, that's why we did this. It's the, fourth, it's the end of the second half, and I feel good. Mahad Zara wants to know, who is the best player with whom you have shared the basketball court? Wow. A great question, and I have been privileged to share the core with uh, so many players. Uh, Maybe I'll adjust it a tad to make it a little easier and say, is there any player who, on another team, when you see them coming down the court, you actually feel a sense of either fear or being overwhelmed because you're like, this person is that good? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of them play on my team. Uh, yeah, I, see, that's what I knew you were going to – that's why I made it another team. <laughs> That's what people always say. 
Uh, I'm rarely in that position because I've got an army behind me. Um, you know, earlier in my career, I definitely had some jitters when we played Phoenix. You know, um, they were you know Diana and Penny Taylor, and uh, they had a they had a force going on uh, earlier in my career where I was I was nervous. I always still love playing Diana and love playing Phoenix. There's just no no better competitor. Um, you know, we've had. Um, obviously, our LA series the last couple of years have been so intense. I wouldn't say fear; mm-hmm. I would say that that anxiety of knowing like they are a force and we are a force, and if any of us lays down for a second, we're going to get rolled over. So uh, those are fun. Um, but a little twist: I've been able to play, uh, you know, with with President President Obama um, when I was in college, and 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 and. Uh, you know, he invited some great athletes and some bat basketball players, and so we were playing. We had some pickup games going on to celebrate one of his birthdays, and so I've shared the court, basketball court, with the left-handed bandit, President Obama, and uh, you know, LeBron was there, and and just so many magic and so many other uh, great legends, and so. Um, do, do people foul the president? I've always wondered that. In when those pickup games, like, did he ever get a hard foul? I always had this image of the Secret Service that then swarming the court. I'll, I'll block his shot, but I, I, I won't foul him. You know, some some of his buddies might foul him, but I I'm not going to be the one. You know, yeah. so you know he wasn't on my team. I wasn't guarding him much. I was guarding one of his one of his buddies, uh, and so he still jokes with with his buddies about uh, you know how the th- the things that I that I was doing. So it's uh it's uh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I didn't see any. Mm-hmm. That day, but it might it might happen. Now you just sent his shot back, uh, man. That's a feather in the cap right there. Um, and then last question for you is, and this is someone who's who won four gold medals at the Olympics, three gold medals. Nancy Hogshead McCarr, uh, she listens to the show. She is a gold medal swimmer, and she wanted to ask, um, could you tell any difference at UConn in the way the college men's and women's teams were treated, and what kind of messages did that send you and the other women at the university? Any any changes in how the teams were treated and the messages that it transmitted? That's a great question. Um, hmm. I think I was pretty aware, you know, as a college athlete, that UConn was different and UConn was special. Um, Different in a good way and different in a bad way. I think we were different in that we, as as, as the women women's players, we were treated like rock stars because of the respect that we had from uh, the fans, the the respect mm-hmm. that our coaching staff had established, and the players that had come through before us had established, and um, things like Title IX already being established in our university, and you know being behind us and making sure that we had everything we need. I always felt like we were leaders in that and, ha- and having everything we need and being treated well and our fans were amazing and supporting us and we were winning. And so, um, you know, and having the facilities that we needed, having, you know, the charter flights that, that we could have and um, <clears throat> the access to the things that we needed. And so that sent a message to me that, you know, if you work hard and you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to get rewarded. But I also know we were different in that it's not like that everywhere around the country. Mm-hmm. And so um, being aware of, uh, of both realities um, was, was good and bad, you know, bad because it's discouraging to see, you know, 
sometimes even if you do, you know, work and, and do everything you're supposed to, you don't always get um, necessarily the, the fruits of those and as far as attention and dollars and, 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 and access to things, but um, but that it, it's possible because we were doing it at UConn. So um, mm. I, I, I go into life now having graduated um, knowing it's possible and how it's supposed to look and hopefully continuing it on and I'm just super blessed to, to have been drafted into an organization led by Glenn Taylor, who who owns uh, you know the Timberwolves and the Minnesota Lynx, and he does the same things. He treats us excellent, uh, you know, with excellence. When we work hard and we do the things we're supposed to, he he overflows us with whatever we need, and we get treated really well. Our logo was right next to the T Wolves logo on our Mayo Mayo Clinic practice facility, and I'm just so fortunate to be a part of you know two back-to-back organizations that really are leaders in showing what it's supposed to look like for rewarding talent, rewarding people um, when they're doing the things that they're supposed to be doing at a high level. So um, it's it's possible. we got to keep keep trying to work for that. And, um, you know, thankfully I'm, I'm in two organizations, like I said, who are, who are awesome leaders in that. And then just the last one from Michelle B. is just wants to know, is, is, she's a big fan, and she just said, wanted to know, she said, is it just my perception or has Gino mellowed? over the years, particularly with regard to player activism and player outspokenness? Oh, mellowed in that sense. Um, hmm. I wasn't expecting the question to go that way, mellowed out in terms of, of that. Well, <clears throat> I think times are, you know. You, well, has he mellowed in general? I'd love, it seemed like that's where you were going. I'd love to know the answer to that. Do you feel like he's mellowed? I think every player that graduates and moves on thinks that he's, you know, mellowing out and is not as hard on the, the current players as he mm. was on us. And so that's, that's still the mindset, I think, of everybody that graduates is y'all don't have it as bad as we had it. Um, but I think also him becoming a grandpa with his, his, his grandbabies, you know, he's gotten a little, you know, his grandkids, he's becoming grandpa Gino now. So, you know, that might have taken some of the edge off, but, uh, you know he's still uh, he's still amazing, and I think um, people don't really understand how much of a of a fighter he is for us as women and and his players and and, and female athletes and and the game of basketball. Like he's just he 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 fights for us, and he's so passionate about making sure people understand the value of what we're doing um, and and to appreciate the things that need to be appreciated about our game and. Um, and so I, I definitely think that he he's always willing to to, to step up and speak out um, for those issues when it's relevant and when it needs to be set. Um, and so um, you know I don't know necessarily their current policies on 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 what players can do with, with social media and different things, but um, I know he's always um, going to stand up for you know if, if he has an opportunity. To, to use his voice to, to to speak up for what's you know what's really going on and what's you know what's right. Um, a lot of times he steps into that, and that's why we love him because we know it's, it's for him it's more than just basketball and winning. It's about his players. It's about you know our community, and um, he does it so well. And you know sometimes he gets in trouble with how he says things, <laughs> but we love him for it, and uh, you know we love him. Mm-hmm. And last thing I ask every guest is I always like knowing what music you're listening to these days, whether it's for working out or for chilling out. Ooh, did not realize that. 
goodness. Um, Hillsong has some great stuff out on their latest album uh, called Wonder. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm checking out Lecrae's last album uh, called All Things Work Together. Um, those are two two of the top ones um, that I think I could choose from right now. So, um, yeah. Nice. Uh, Maya Moore, thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you for your outspokenness. Thank you for the inspiration that you've given us on and off the court. Absolutely. So glad we got this time. I appreciate it. Me too. Appreciate you very much. Be well. Thank you so much again to Maya Moore. We'll be back right after this with the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. First, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, this is the oldest weekly magazine in 150 years. That's what The Nation is. And in those 150 years, there is one common thread that runs all the way through it. That is unembedded independent media. And obviously, we need that now more than ever. If you want the latest and greatest articles about what's happening in D.C., but also what's happening in local communities in terms of people who are fighting the grassroots fights against this GOP agenda, which is absolutely monstrous in my personal opinion, please Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please give a little bit, subscribe. It'll make a huge difference to the reporters and journalists who are doing the work, telling the stories, knitting together the movements, and having the debates we need to have to fight for a better world. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now I've got some choice words about the sports world and the fight for Amazon headquarters. Look, there is a terrific podcast out there called Citations Needed, and they have a phrase called lotteryism, which they describe as the grotesque process where local and state governments bid for Fortune 500 companies by offering billions of dollars in tax breaks in the hopes that they will relocate to their cities. The most high-profile example of this right now is, of course, Amazon, where politicians are offering absurd packages for their new Amazon HQ2 headquarters. These enticements will gut services for those who depend on public schools, hospitals, public transportation, and basic infrastructure. This is not to say that Amazon won't bring jobs to these cities. They are making promises of thousands of permanent hires. But the pound of flesh being offered for these jobs is frightening. There's Chicago, which has said Amazon could keep employees' income taxes, a total estimated at $1.32 billion, according to the Seattle publication The Stranger. There is New Jersey, which has offered a staggering $7 billion in tax breaks. There is Boston, where they have offered to have city employees be privatized workers when doing work under the auspices of Jeff Bezos' empire, his own army of the underclass. There is Southern California offering $100 million in free land. And then there is Fresno, which would place 85% of every tax dollar generated by Amazon into a so-called Amazon Community Fund. This would give Amazon control over where our taxes flow, which undoubtedly would be in the direction of their own well-compensated employees. Think parks, bike lanes, condo development, and creating a new model of gentrification directly subsidized by the traffic tickets, meters, and regressive taxation of the poor. If you want to hear the contempt that city politicians have for our tax dollars, this quote from Fresno's economic development director Larry Westerland speaks volumes. He said, 
Rather than the money disappearing into a civic black hole, Amazon would have a say on where it will go. Not for the fire department on the fringe of town, but to enhance their own investment in Fresno. End quote. Gee, sure would suck to have your home on fire if you live on the fringe of town, wouldn't it? This is little more than corporate theft in collusion with often liberal Democratic Party-led governments. It's also worth pointing out that the ground has been laid for it in the public consciousness, especially in the above cities, by sports, by publicly funded stadium scams and Olympic bidding wars that have normalized the idea that our tax dollars exist to fund the projects of the wealthy, with benefits trickling down in ways that only produce more thirst. Chris Heller wrote a terrifically detailed report for the Pacific Standard about stadium funding where he estimated that over the past 15 years, more than $12 billion in public money has been spent on privately owned stadiums. He writes, between 1991 and 2010, 101 new stadiums were opened across the country. Nearly all of those projects were funded by taxpayers, end quote. As Neil DeMouse, author of Field of Schemes and a former guest on this show, Edge of Sports, he said to me, more recent corporate leaders have no doubt looked to the billions of dollars lavished on sports teams and decided to up their ante, end quote. You can see this in the cities that have offered the most gobsmacking giveaways to Amazon. There is Chicago, which is still paying off renovations to the White Sox's cellular field more than 25 years after it opened. They're also paying for the Chicago Bears home of Soldier Field in $430 million in debt related to renovations, including $36 million in payments owed this year. Then there is Southern California, where San Diego voters rejected pouring over a billion dollars into giving the then San Diego Chargers and their owner Dean Spanos over a billion dollars for a new NFL stadium. Yet Los Angeles took the team and is paying $60 million to pay for roads and infrastructure for a new facility that was supposed to be privately funded. LA has also pledged $5.3 billion to host the 2028 Olympics, a number to judge by past Olympics that will balloon. They are doing so despite having the highest number of chronically homeless people in the United States, and according to the U.S. Census, more people living in poverty than any major U.S. city. It's also telling that Sacramento, the state capital, is where $272 million is being paid in taxes for the NBA's Sacramento Kings in their new facility. If the Kings leave before their 35-year lease is up, that debt will still need to be paid just as the people of Oakland will still be paying for the Raiders stadium for years after the team moves to Las Vegas. Then there is Boston, which tried to ram through its own multi-billion dollar bid for the Olympic Games. Even though their bid was beaten back by activists, the heavy-handed efforts by politicians to sell this to the public has normalized the playing field upon which cities compete against one another. They don't compete to see who has the lowest poverty rate or the least people behind bars, they compete for businesses and the affection of 21st century plutocrats who promise prosperity yet deliver it only for themselves, newly arriving executives, and whatever politicians might be greased in the process. Our love of sports laid the groundwork for the madness of lotteryism. We're the frog in the slowly boiling water, and they are not content merely to cook us. We're also their dinner. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. 
This week, the Just Stand Up Award Stand up! goes to Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors. Steve Kerr has spoken out against Donald Trump on numerous occasions to sports reporters. Yet for the first time, he actually sat down with CNN and brought his ideas to a much broader audience. In an interview with David Axelrod, Steve Kerr really made it plain. And I want to read to you Steve Kerr's actual words of what he said. He said, There's another reason why all of us on our team, the Golden State Warriors, have a tough time with the president. Because instead of unifying and trying to calm the storm, he's creating it over and over again. We see it with his tweets every day. He used the word sons of bitches to talk about NFL players who have made it clear they're protesting racial inequality and police brutality. Those are sons of bitches? Really? You're the president of the United States and you're going to call them sons of bitches? And you're going to call Kaepernick out for nonviolent protests, a staple of American democracy? That's really hard to deal with. And for me, that was probably the hardest one to deal with. The personal slights that we've seen from Trump You sort of get used to it after a while. You get numb to it. But that one really stung because it was so divisive and it was so angry and it just didn't make sense. We see what President Trump does with his words, with his actions, and it's difficult to reconcile that and just say, we'll all put that aside. He can make fun of handicapped people. He can say a lot of nasty things, ugly things, whether it's about women, whomever. There can be a lot of things that happen that are just really difficult to just say, all right, We'll put that aside and go visit the White House and shake his hand. It just doesn't feel right. End quote. Thank you, Steve Kerr. You are the recipient of the Just Stand Up Award this week. Now, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down this week goes to the NCAA and college football. Just the whole damn structure of college football, particularly how coaches are paid after they are fired. College football coaches, the ones who have been fired just this year, are owed more than $60 million in buyouts. Buyouts that often have to be paid within 30 days of the coach leaving. We're not talking small money here. We're talking $10.5 million to Kevin Sumlin from Texas A&M. $14 million to Jim Mora from USC. Millions more to Brett Belima for not being able to turn Arkansas into an SEC powerhouse. It is an astounding amount of money, and it's happening in some of the most cash-strapped states. And I just want to make this point as well. In 2015 and 2016, according to USA Today, and this is the most recent year for which schools' financial reports to the NCAA are available, 177 of 230 Division I public schools, and that's like roughly 60%, said that they spent less than $60 million on their entire athletic departments. Think about this for a second. In 60% of Division I public schools, They spend less than the $60 million that's being paid to a small handful of college football coaches. One, this system is so broken. Two, pay the damn players. And three, the NCAA is a cartel. And the people who don't benefit from it are the people who are subject to the brain injuries and the broken dreams of playing college football. And that's all I got to say about that. So NCAA, Mark Emmert, Sit your ass down.
If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, where we look at the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick, the colluded against NFL quarterback. So look, one of the most underrated things Colin Kaepernick has done is that he has people critically examining not just the NFL and racism and the patriotism it demands, but also holidays, U.S. holidays. And he's done so with a series of viral videos that have just gone all over the place. Um, The first one that got attention was on July 4th, Independence Day, when he traveled to Ghana to the sites where enslaved people were sold. And he said, how can we truly celebrate independence on a day that intentionally robbed our ancestors of theirs? To find my independence, I went home. Then on Veterans Day, Colin Kaepernick came to D.C., my hometown here, and went to one of my favorite spots, the African-American Civil War Museum, where he was part of a wreath-laying ceremony at the memorial, which pays tribute to the more than 200,000 African-American veterans of the Civil War. And this is what he said. He said, It's amazing to see the courage and dedication of the veterans that fought for this country only to have to continue fighting for their rights. Then on Thanksgiving, Colin Cap took the cake or maybe the pumpkin pie as it were he showed solidarity with native americans at the indigenous people's sunrise gathering on alcatraz island standing with them and speaking out in a sitting bull shirt thank you so much it it truly is an honor to be here today i'm very humbled to share this space with all of you and in thinking about coming and supporting I realize that our fight is the same fight. We're all fighting for our justice, for our freedom. And realizing that we're in this fight together makes us all the more powerful. So if there's one thing that I take away from today and seeing the beauty of everybody out here is that we're only getting stronger every day. We're only getting larger and larger every day. I see the strength in everybody, the dancing, the rituals, that is our resistance. We continue to fight, we fight for justice, we fight for our freedom, and we continue on that path. Thank you. I cannot wait to see what he does on Christmas. Well, that's all for this week's show. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigaboo, riding solo this week. Thank you so much to Maya Moore. Appreciate you so much. Remember, everybody, I said it earlier in the show, we now have a Patreon page. Patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Please check it out. Please give generously so we can continue and actually expand the work that we are doing 
on this podcast. If you want to reach out to me, you can anytime at 401-426-3343. My email is edgeofsports at gmail.com. If you ever have your own ideas for who should get the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down award, please tell friends. Subscribe to the podcast. Go to iTunes. Go to Stitcher. Go to your podcast app of choice. Please leave more comments. It makes a huge difference in these algorithms that I do not understand. Stay frosty, everybody. We are out of here. Peace. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park